0: Let's begin at the place where I plan to end tonight. God speaking in Isaiah 44, verse 8, at the end of the verse, he asks the question, Is there any God besides me, or is there any other rock I know of none? Now this is all part of God's defense of himself. And in order to understand what we're about to read from Isaiah 43, starting at verse 14, which is where we left off last week, we need to get a little bit of historic context. But as we read from Isaiah 43, 14, all the way to 44, 8, what we're going to see is God yet again showing the absolute guilt of Israel and yet declaring blessings on Israel for his own namesake, because he chose them. In other words, this theology of salvation by grace through faith is right here in Isaiah 43 and 44. We've seen it time and time again in the prophecies of Isaiah. Clearly, he has stated repeatedly that Israel is nothing but guilty before God, and yet, Their guilt, as bad as it is, will not prevent God from redeeming them. And God keeps calling himself the God of Israel, the Redeemer of Israel, the Holy One of Israel. He keeps giving himself that name, even though he keeps stating their absolute sinfulness, depravity, and rebellion against him. And you're going to see that here again. I like portions of the Bible where you see a prophecy that has not yet come true when Isaiah said it, but that you can find the fulfillment of in human history, in time on planet Earth. Chapter 43, starting at verse 14, we're going to see exactly that. So here's the historic context. As he's writing it down, Assyria is no longer the primary military political power in the middle east assyria is losing its authority the new kingdom that is rising up is the kingdom of the chaldeans babylon as their capital city and the power of babylon is of course the power that is going to take jerusalem judah into captivity now Jeremiah is kind of a contemporary with Isaiah. They have a little bit of an overlap during the time of their prophetic careers. Jeremiah is the one who predicts that Judah is going to go into Babylon for 70 years. So we know that Babylon is rising in the Middle East. They are the rising political, military power. They are holding sway over the Middle East, and we know from Jeremiah's prophecy that God is going to use the power of Babylon in order to correct the people of Judah, and he's only going to put them there for 70 years. And here, for the first time in the book of Isaiah, there is this direct reference to Babylon and to the Chaldeans, but it's not you're going to go into Babylon. It's not you're going to be punished by Babylon. It's Babylon, during its ascendancy... As it's becoming the most powerful government in the area of the Middle East, God leaps immediately to, and I'm going to destroy Babylon. I'm going to take Babylon down. That's where he starts. He starts with the reassurance that he is in control of the nation that is just in its ascendancy at that moment. So God just leaps over. Jerusalem and Judah being taken into captivity in Babylon he leaps right over the 70 years and he goes right to I'm going to cause them to flee. I'm going to cause them to scatter and run. Now that's chapter 43 chapter 44 is where we're going to hopefully end tonight. Chapter 45 is where we're going to see the prediction 150 years in advance where Isaiah actually names Cyrus by name Cyrus the Persian who is going to allow the children of Judah to come back and rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. So that kind of gives you some idea of the portion of history that's being discussed right here. So God's going to bring up the fact that he is going to take down Babylon while they're still rising to their political power before he has even taken Jerusalem into Babylon. God says that he's going to protect Israel going to protect Judah from Babylon and he says he's going to do it because he is the Lord he is their particular holy one he is the creator of Israel he is the king of Israel and he's the one who does all these miraculous things on behalf of Israel and then by the time you get to verse 22 he says and yet you haven't called out to me Even though I'm the God who has this long history with you, even though I redeemed you out of Egypt, even though... You have seen the northern tribes go into the Assyrian captivity, even though you have seen me protect you from the armies of the Assyrians, even though I'm going to take you into Babylon. But I'm telling you now, it's only going to be for 70 years so that you can look forward to your redemption yet again and being brought back to Jerusalem and rebuilding the temple and rebuilding your walls, even though I've shown you what I've done in the past for you and I've told you what I'm going to do in the future for you, still, you haven't called on me still, you think it's too big a problem to come and worship me correctly. And then, by the time you get to chapter 44, but now listen, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen, thus says the Lord who made you and formed you in the womb, he's going to help you. Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant. And so... If you look at it in the big picture, which is why I'm going to try to bite this whole chunk off tonight, if you look at it in the big picture, God is still in the process of defending himself. He still is saying, look at the amazing things I have already done in the past. In the midst of that, he's going to say, and you know what? Never mind what I've already done in the past. I'm going to do a new thing. I'm going to do yet another thing for you. I'm going to redeem you yet again. And so they are told before they go into the Babylonian captivity that if they would just trust the God who chose them, the God who made them, the God who redeemed them, the God who has that history with them, if they would just trust him, he is going to faithfully deliver them back out of Babylon and give them the glorious future that he has already told them about. Therefore, trust me, worship me, respond to me. And again, he says, and you don't. Instead, the worship of God is wearying to you. Mm -hmm. And then he says, and I'm going to redeem you anyway. But not for you. First, he makes sure they know how terribly guilty they are. Understand how completely faulty you are, how you won't even do the prescribed worship. The prescribed worship they have ignored. They have considered it to be too big a burden. Their rebellion is full. Their chasing after foreign gods is full. And yet God then says, okay, now you know it can't be you. It can't be because of you. It can't be because of what you have done. I am going to save you and redeem you for my own name's sake. So what do you see? Grace, 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 and grace. Because redemption, true, genuine salvation... The everlasting destiny that God has prepared for his people is always, always a result of grace. There's nowhere in the Bible, Old or New Testament, where you see God responding to the goodness of people and then giving them salvation and redemption in response to their goodness. Instead, he's very careful to say, you're just all bad, but I'm going to redeem those people who I chose. Yes, sir. That takes synergism completely out of the picture in order to give God all the glory. Even though synergism is so popular, that's just very popular. That's that's just pride trying to push their way in
1: and
0: and they'll go their way to be part of it. And that's why I said here, yet again, we see the same theology that we've been reading about at the beginning of the book of Ephesians. That God is the one who does the choosing, God does the saving, God does the electing, God does the predestining. That is not unique to Paul in the New Testament. He did not just make that up. We're going to read it tonight out of Isaiah. Okay, that was all introduction. I think we're ready to go. Starting in Isaiah 43 at verse 14, thus says, notice how Yahweh describes himself. I am Yahweh, your Redeemer. The Holy One of Israel. He gives himself both those names so that he can identify himself as the one who is ultimately going to be the salvation and redemption of Israel. They are not the cause of it, they are not the reason for it. He is the one who is the Redeemer and the Holy One of Israel. Mm. For your sake, I have sent to Babylon. Uh, There's so much going on in that little phrase. They have not yet gone into Babylon. Jeremiah is at the moment predicting the coming incursion of Babylon and how they're going to be carried away and how they're going to serve there in Babylon for 70 years. And yet God says, I've sent to Babylon to bring them all down. And the reason that he's doing it, he says to Israel, I'm the redeemer, the holy one of Israel. I'm the Lord, your redeemer. So for your sake. I'm going to take down Babylon. Babylon is rising up in power and political and military might at that moment. And God says, for your sake, Israel, I'm going to take down Babylon. This is the way he describes it. For your sake, I have sent to Babylon and will bring them all down as fugitives. That means they're fleeing. They're all going to be running. Even the Chaldeans. So we know what people group now. He's identified the two people groups. He's the redeemer of Israel. That's one group. And the Chaldeans in Babylon, that's another group. And he is choosing Israel over the Chaldeans. Even the Chaldeans into the ships in which they rejoice. What that's about is Babylon is very, very dependent on the river Euphrates that runs through the Middle East there. And they had a massive navy that went up and down the Euphrates there. And they controlled so much of the Middle East, based on their ships. And God says, those ships that they rejoiced in, that they thought brought them so much power, so much trading ability, the ability to reach out to distant lands, they're so proud of their ships, I'm going to make them get in their ships and run away. Which is what happened when Babylon fell. Those that weren't killed took off by ship, scattered. So here is God predicting, and I'm just stressing this so that you can understand the incredible nature of this. That God is saying, before they've even gone into Babylon, as Babylon is just amassing its power, God says, For your sake, Israel, I'm gonna take Babylon down. So you're gonna spend your 70 years in Babylon, but have faith, trust in me. I've chosen you, I'm your redeemer. I will protect you, and I'm going to take Babylon down. Then when you get to chapter 45, and you read about Cyrus, and you read that God is going to use Cyrus in order to bring the children of Judah back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and rebuild the walls of the city, you see God continuing to promise these things a hundred or more years in advance that this is what I'm going to do. So you would think that once Judah actually ended up in Babylon, they'd say, hey, you know what? That part of the prophecy is coming true. Mm -hmm. Except they'd say it in Hebrew. You know, this this part of the prophecy where we get carried away to Babylon, that Jeremiah predicted, that's coming true. So that means the other part of the prophecy where God's going to restore us and bring us back to Jerusalem after 70 years and where God is going to scatter Babylon and how Cyrus, we don't know who that is, But some king that's going to come up named Cyrus, he's going to let us go back. We should have every confidence in that God. He's already told us what he's going to do, and he's already told us what he has done, and he's already demonstrated his complete sovereign power over history and over the future. We really ought to trust him. So here's God making his case, laying out his case, and then saying, and for all of that, you don't turn to me. Here's how it goes. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I have sent to Babylon, and I will bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans, into the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord. I am your Holy One. I am the creator of Israel. I am your king. What is God saying here? I'm completely in control here. And notice how frequently he connects himself to Israel. I am the creator of Israel. I'm the holy one of Israel. I'm the redeemer of Israel. I'm the king of Israel. So knowing that that's who I am, thus says the Lord. And then he throws out a few credits. I'm the God who did all this in your past. I'm the one who makes a way through the sea. That's probably a reference to opening up the Red Sea so that Israel would be redeemed out of Egypt. He's pointing out the fact that he's redeemed them before. He can do it again. I'm the one who makes a way through the sea. I make a path through the mighty waters. I bring forth the chariot and the horse. In other words, I'm the one who's in control of the armies whether they're Assyrian, whether they're Babylonian, whether they're Chaldean, whether they're Medo-Persian, I'm in control of the chariots and the horses and the army and the mighty men. I'm in charge of all them. And they will lay down together and not rise up again. As powerful as they seem, don't be afraid of them because they're all going to die. And they're all going to stand before me in judgment. They will all lie down together and they will not rise up again. They have been quenched and extinguished like a wick, putting out the last little flame. I'm putting out the fire of those nations. So knowing that that's who I am and that's the capability that I have. Verse 18. Having reminded them of what he's done, reminding them that he has redeemed them, reminding them that he is part of the Red Sea, reminding them that he is in control of all the foreign armies and that he's going to destroy them all, reminding them of all that. In verse 19, he says, or in verse 18, he says, OK, don't call to mind the former things. I just listed all the former things, all the stuff I've done for you. But you know what? Don't dwell on that. Don't ponder the things of the past. Behold, I will do something new. So I have a future for you. I have a plan for you. I have an intention for you. So rather than giving all your thought to the things I have done for you, consider what I'm going to do for you and the promises that I have made for you. This may also, by the way, be a reference to the new covenant that Jeremiah is going to predict in Jeremiah 31. Behold, I'm going to do something new for you. Instead of saving you by the law, I'm going to save you by grace, through faith, by a new covenant in the blood of Christ. Behold, I will do something new. Now it will spring forth. Will you not be aware of it? I will even make a roadway in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Okay, now he is probably talking physically, geographically here, but he's also talking symbolically. And in a moment, he'll explain what he means by that phrase. I will even make a roadway in the wilderness, a smooth path. And I will make rivers in the desert. The beasts of the field, they're going to glorify me. The jackals and the ostriches, because I have given water in the wilderness and put rivers in the desert. Even the wild animals know enough to recognize and glorify me when I provide them the things that they need. It's you humans. It's you Israelites who I have done magnificent things for and you still won't turn to me. But when I bring water to animals, they know enough to recognize and to glorify me. And then he says... The reason for the rivers in the desert and the waters in the wilderness is to give drink to my chosen people. There he is referring to Israel again as his elect, his chosen. So then when you get to the New Testament, when you get to like the book of Matthew, when you get to like Matthew 24, and you see Jesus make references to his elect when the church is not yet established. He hasn't yet died. The new covenant is not in effect yet. And he says that he's going to send his angels to go gather his elect from the four winds. How would they have heard it? How would they have understood it? Who would the elect be? Clearly the elect are Israel. Because Isaiah and several other of the prophets refer to Israel as his chosen, as his elect people. And it is because of his election of them that he's going to secure their future and do all these things. New things for them. To give drink to my chosen people. The people whom I formed for myself. Who is that? It's Israel. It can't be anybody else. Contextually, it can't be a reference to the church. Here he is saying, the people who I formed for myself, Israel, they will declare my praise. Okay, so now you kind of get some sense of what he was talking about when he said, I'm going to bring water into the desert. I'm going to bring waters into the wilderness. And then the animals are going to give me praise. And the same way, I'm going to bring living water to my chosen people, Israel, and then they will declare my praise. Verse 22. So here he is. He's made his defense. He's laid out, remember what I've done, and here's my promises of what I'm going to do. I'm going to create the circumstances where you are actually going to declare my praise and you are going to worship me. And yet, you have not called on me, O Jacob. Notice the difference. He refers to him as heel catcher. He refers to him as supplanters. But you have become weary of me, Oh, Israel, this is the same Israel who, when they were 40 years in the wilderness, getting food from heaven every day to eat, ended up saying, my soul loathes this light bread. I'm so tired of this free food from heaven every day because it's the same old thing every day. And so at some point they saw the worship of God that he dictated in his law how he expects to be approached, how he expects to be worshipped, how they were to bring sacrifices to him. He says, you've just become weary of it. It's become standard. It's become rote. You have not brought me the sheep of your burnt offerings, nor have you honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings. I think that's God being a little bit sarcastic there. Either he is saying you've reached the point where you think it's just not necessary. Mm. Or you think that bringing the necessary offerings to me is just a burden, and you've stopped doing it. I have stopped burdening you with your offerings that you should be bringing me. Nor have I wearied you with the incense. They were supposed to make sure to worship him with the proper incense, the proper sacrifice, the proper blood, to come with the proper offerings, And God said, apparently you're just over all that. There's a phrase that Janine uses where she says sometimes, I can't be bothered. Mm. And the first time I heard it, I was like, it's a bother to you? What are you you saying? And then I realized that she was saying, it's just not worth my time. Mm. Same thing here. God is saying, apparently I'm just not worth your time. I'm not worth the effort it would take to worship me properly. You have not brought me the sheep of your burnt offerings, nor have you honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings, nor wearied you with incense. You have bought me no sweet cane with money, neither have you filled me with the fat of your sacrifices. Rather, rather than being burdened with those sacrifices, Here's the little twist of the knife from God. Instead of all that, you have burdened me with your sins. Mm. You feel like the worship, the proper worship of me, your Redeemer, that's too big a burden. You can't be bothered with that. So instead, what you have done is you have burdened me with your sins, with your trespasses, with your rebellion against me. You have wearied me. If it's too big a thing, you're, you're wearied by all those sacrifices. You're wearied by worshiping me appropriately. Well, you have wearied me with your iniquities. Think it's too big a thing to bring the proper sacrifices at the proper time to worship me in my prescribed way? Isn't that too big a problem for you. Well, you're a mighty big problem to me. And you have burdened me with your sins and you have wearied me with your iniquities. Me. Verse 25, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake. Isn't that astounding? (laughs) Those two lines, you have wearied me with your sins. You have burdened me with your iniquities. So what do I do in response? I'm going to correct you, and I'm going to forgive you. And I am the one who is going to wipe out your transgressions, but not for your sake, for my sake, because I chose you. And my reputation's at stake. And if I were to punish you, if I were to ignore you completely, if I were to give you what you actually deserve, if I was to cast you off entirely, which you deserve, then that would be like saying, OK, God chose the people and then change his mind gave up on them God's argument here is because I chose you because you're my elect even though you continue to burden me with your iniquities and your lack of worship toward me nevertheless I'm going to forgive your transgressions I'm going to wipe them out for my own sake and I will not remember your sins God's holy forgetfulness God says, I'm not going to remember your sins. Now, by the way, that is an indication of how God works. So plug yourself in there for just a moment. Consider your own relationship with God for just a moment and recognize that this is how God works, that even when you weary him with your transgressions, Even when you reach the point of thinking, how could God love or save or redeem anybody like me? Just remember that if he chose you before the foundation of the world, you belong to him. And even though you burden him with your sins, even though you weary him with your transgressions, he's not saving you because of you. He's saving you for his own name's sake, Or as Paul puts it in the New Testament, to the glory of his own grace so that he can demonstrate his grace on completely undeserving people. That's how he works in the Old Testament. That's how he works in the New Testament and declares, I will not remember your sins. Then in starting in verse 26, God says, again, almost sarcastically, OK, now help me remember. <laughs> uh, put me in remembrance here. Let us argue our case together. I'll argue my side, which he's been doing for all these chapters. I'll argue my side, and then uh, remind me, what was your side? What's your argument? Why, why exactly are you so good that you could stand up against me? That you are like me? That your idols are anything like me? Remind me, will you? Put me in remembrance. Let us argue our case together. State your cause so that you might be proved right. (laughs) That's pretty sarcastic. It's like, have you heard anything I've said so far? Have you heard anything about my absolute glory that not only tells you about the past but predicts the future? My absolute glory that calls every star by name? My absolute glory that made everything for my own sake? My absolute glory that's going to forgive you and forget about your sins. My absolute glory that doesn't even need what I've done in the past. I'm going to do a new thing. And I've promised you this incredible inheritance. And I'm going to do it, not because of you, but for my own namesake. Now, what do you got? So that you can say, yeah, I'm like God. And me and God, we're we're on the same level here. We work synergistically. We work cooperatively, me and God. Put me in remembrance. Let us argue our case together. You make your side, I'll make my side. State your cause so that you might be proved right. Your first forefather sinned. That's a reference to Adam. Mm. So that's your heritage. That's what kind of people you are. I'm holy and righteous and sinless. And your first forefather, the very first one, right away, immediately... Sinner! Your first forefathers sinned, and your spokesmen have transgressed against me. Spokesman is an interesting translation there. He's talking about the priests that go and sacrifice to God. I've defined the offices of the Old Testament for you before, that the the prophets are the ones who hear from God and then speak to the people. And then the priests are the ones who go on behalf of the people to sacrifice to God. So those are the two ways of communication. That's who he's referring to when he says, your spokesman, the ones who come to me on your behalf, they're also transgressors. They're also sinners. So I will pollute the princes or the people who run the sanctuary. They're polluted already. They're sinful from the beginning. And you're not sacrificing appropriately and according to me. And so therefore, I'm going to pollute the princes of the sanctuary. And I'm going to consign Jacob. The NASB says to the ban. What do your other translations say there? I'm going to consign Jacob because it basically means I'm going to make them like a byword among the nations. I'm going to make the, the peoples who see them kind of wag their heads and go, wow, look what God did to them. What do your translations say? Deliver Jacob to utter destruction. Utter destruction, yeah. And Israel to reviling. To reviling, yeah, that's that idea. All the other nations around them are going to say, wow, look... This is the people who claim to have this singular God who made everything, the God who created all things, who's sovereign over all things. And look what he did to them. I will consign Jacob to the ban and Israel to revilement. Then almost without taking a breath, chapter 44 starts. Knowing everything that we've talked about so far tonight knowing how terribly sinful the transgressions of Israel are and how they will not worship God accordingly or appropriately, will not bring him the sacrifices that they are supposed to bring. And knowing that they've got absolutely nothing in the big debate, which is why he could say, remind me, what do you got? What's important about you? So they've got nothing, nothing, nothing. That's what God is doing, is taking them down, 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 down to the point of even the princes of the sanctuary, where you meet with me, I'm going to destroy them, I'm going to pollute them, and Israel is going to become a byword among the nations, I'm going to bring you down to nothing, but now, listen, O Jacob, same people group, Mm. O Jacob, my servant, He just got done saying, apparently, it's too much for you to serve me appropriately. Apparently, it's too much of a burden for you to worship me appropriately. But he keeps referring to them as my servant, the ones I chose, my elect. But now listen, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. There is again my elect. Here's what I'm going to do. Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Before he identified himself as the Redeemer of Israel, the Holy One of Israel, The one who was going to do these things for their sake because he was Yahweh, the Holy One, the creator of Israel, the king of Israel. Now he identifies himself as Yahweh who made you, who formed you when you were in your mother's belly because I chose you and I made you for myself and I formed you for my own glory. For all those reasons, I'll help you. I'm going to cause the trouble that's coming. I'm going to cause the difficulties in your life. I'm going to cause you to be taken into Babylon. I'm going to cause you to go in and serve there for 70 years. I'm going to cause you all the heartache that's coming your way. But remember, I'm going to help you because I already told you, I'm taking down Babylon. I'm going to destroy Babylon. And in the next chapter, and I'm going to raise up Cyrus. Mm -hmm. And he is going to bring you back here. So I'm the God that corrects you. I'm the God that punishes you. I'm the God that redeems you. I'm the God that helps you. Now that tells us something very important again about God. This is God describing himself, describing his nature, describing his character. We think all too often that when things are going good in our lives, that that's God. Oh, God is blessing me. God's taking care of me. God's providing for me. That's God. And then when things go wrong in our life, we're more likely to think, where is God in all this? But here is God saying that he is, in fact, the one who creates the light, who forms the darkness. He is the one who brings the blessings, and he is the one that brings the trouble. He says it here as, I'm the one who made you, I'm the one who formed you, I'm going to help you, so do not fear, O Jacob, my servant. Because I'm the one that's going to bring the trouble. And I'm the one that's going to bring the redemption. I'm the one that's going to bring the help. I'm the one that's going to bring the blessings. I'm the one that's going to bring the correction. I'm the one that's going to bring the pain. I'm the God who does all these things. So wherever you are, whatever you're going through, no matter what your lot in life at this moment. God is intimately involved in what you're going through. Mm. And that is all part of what we mean when we say God is sovereign We don't just mean he's the king who gets his way every time. We mean he's intimately involved in absolutely every facet of your life and that all things do work together for good to those who are the called according to his purpose. So the trouble of this life has purpose. And when I came to that realization, when I came to the realization that God was indeed in charge of the heartache and the pain and the troubles of this life. That was a tremendous comfort to me because that meant that suffering had purpose. Mm. Purposeless suffering seems cruel. If you can say that God makes people suffer for no good reason, then that's a capricious, angry God that probably doesn't deserve our worship. But God says that everything he brings into our lives, the blessing and the endurance to get through the hard times, there is no temptation taken you, but such is common to man. But God is faithful. Who will, with the temptation, provide a way of escape? He's the God who brought the temptation and the escape. He's the one who brought the trial and the relief from the trial. He's the one that brought the slavery and the redemption from slavery. He's the one who is bringing everything into your life for your ultimate good. And that means when you're going through hardship and pain and difficulty, God is right there in the middle of it. And there's a purpose for it that should give you the confidence to know that the same God who brought it on you is going to help you get through it. It's going to help you endure it. Even when it feels like I'm not going to make it. You know by faith, you know intellectually, you know because you're a Bible student, you know that God's going to help you. He's going to get you through it. And you're either going to recover or you're going to die and go home. Either way, God is still providing for you. But now listen, O Jacob, my servant and Israel, whom I have chosen, thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jesheron, whom I have chosen. That word Jeshuron is sort of a poetic name that God gives Israel. It's unique to the Old Testament. You don't find it in the New Testament. But it seems to be a word of affection. When you break the word down, it seems to be an affectionate terminology. By the way, the root of that word Jesheron is upright. And so some translations say, dear upright people, the very same people who he just got done saying, you're anything but upright. You're completely rebellious and sinful, and I'm weary of your transgressions, and I'm going to pay for your transgressions, and I'm not going to remember your sins anymore, and when I get done with you, you're going to be my dear upright people. Mm -hmm. Why? Because I chose you, and I'm going to accomplish it in you. For I will pour out water on the thirsty land. Remember earlier I said hold on to that whole imagery of bringing water into the desert, water to the animals, and water into the wilderness. And so now he says, I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. And now he explains it. The spiritual implication of it is right here. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and I will pour out my blessings on your descendants. So even if he is going to geographically bring water into the desert and into the wilderness so that the animals and his people recognize that he is the one that is sustaining them and providing for them, it is also typifying the fact that he is going to pour out his spirit on the children of Israel and a blessing on their descendants. By the way, did that happen? Maybe this thing called Pentecost, where the children of Israel were all gathered on the day of Pentecost and he poured out his spirit. And Peter stood up and said, yeah, this is that that was predicted by Joel. God is pouring out his spirit. So even that you can look back and say, hey, God said it and he did it. Now that may, Pentecost, may have just been the down payment of what he's going to ultimately do for Israel nationally when he regathers them, when he plants them again in their own land, when he brings them the glorious future that he has promised them, but we already see him keeping that promise, even if it is just a foretaste of the glory to come. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessings on your descendants I think that is also affirmed when Jesus said, when he went up for the feast, and he said, out of those who follow him, out of his disciples, we're going to come rivers of living water. It's the exact same typology as Isaiah is using here rivers of water that give life that are flowing from the Spirit. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring, I will pour out my blessings on your descendants. And they will spring up among the grass like poplars by streams of water, magnificent trees. Now, obviously, he's not talking about grass and trees here. He's saying your descendants are going to grow up like the grass. How much grass is there? That's how populated Israel is going to be. And they're going to be strong and upright like poplars. And this one is going to say, I am the Lord's. And that one will call on the name of Jacob, and another will write on his hand, belonging to the Lord, and will name Israel's name with honor. The day is coming, he says, when you're going to be proud to say, that's right, I'm an Israelite. Mm. So that's a huge change from, I will consign Jacob to the ban, and Israel's going to be reviled. The nations around them are going to wag their heads at them and say, wow, look what happened to them. They're just, they're in slavery now. They were once this great nation, King David, King Solomon, foreign kings used to come, foreign queens like the Queen of Sheba used to come and just see the magnificence of Solomon. And now there are a bunch of people who are enslaved. I am going to bring them down to revilement. And yet God promises them the day is coming when you're going to be proud to say I belong to the Lord. I am the Lord's. And there will be another one who will happily, proudly call on the name of Jacob. And another one's going to write on his hand I'm belonging to the Lord. And they will name Israel's name with honor. Because Israel will be the chief nation of all the nations on the earth and the blessings that flow to the Gentile nations will flow through Israel because after all David's greater son will be sitting on his throne from Jerusalem it all just fits together they will name Israel's name with honor thus says the Lord the king of Israel thus says his redeemer The Lord of hosts, why did he yank out that one? The Lord of hosts right here. Lord of hosts, Lord Sabaoth, it means the God who is in control of all the people and all the armies of heaven, the one who is in control of absolutely everyone and everything who's ever been created. I am the Lord of hosts. I can lift up a nation. I can take down a nation. I can save who I want. I can condemn who I want. That's all wrapped up in that name, the Lord of hosts. So now he says, trust me. Worship me because thus says Yahweh, who is the king of Israel, who is the redeemer of Israel, and who is the Lord of absolutely everybody. I am the first and I am the last and there is no God besides me. God is still making his case. God is still saying, part of how I'm going to demonstrate who I am and what I'm like, part of how I'm going to glorify myself, is what I have done with my people Israel in the history of planet Earth. And if you can look at, if you can observe the ark from Abraham to the glorious future to come, and you see that all the things that were prophesied in the Bible actually occurred and they went from being a hated reviled people they went first from being a a glorious people a mighty nation all the way down to a reviled people to a scattered people to a regathered people to a glorious people again God says you ought to be able to look at the history of the world and look at the history of what I have done with Israel and you should recognize there's no other God but me. That's my proof. Look at world history. Mm. Look at what I've done and look at what I'm going to do and recognize that I am sovereignly in control of all of it. And so even human life and history on planet Earth is part of God's defense of himself. Look at how it turned out how could that be if it weren't for God right now Israel is scattered right now in many parts of the world including in Israel the Jews are a reviled people and yet despite the fact that nations in the Old Testament nations in the New Testament and nations in our own day current as Hitler and as current as Iran, have attempted to wipe them out completely. And they're still here. Why? Because the God who's in control of history has a glorious future for them. So right here, right now, we can take a look at the world and go, yeah, (laughs) yeah, it's happening. God is still in control of human history. He's still doing it. They're still here The Messiah did come through them. The Messiah is coming back. He's going to sit on David's throne. And those people are going to be regathered. And they've got a glorious future ahead of them. And when that all happens, we're all going to say, yeah, you're the God who is the first. You're the God who is the last. Same as Jesus saying, I'm the Alpha. I'm the Omega. Which, by the way, he says in the book of Revelation, when it's all wrapping up, he's saying, look at me. I'm the first and the last. There's nobody like me. I am the first, I am the last, says God, and there is no God besides me who is like me. Let him proclaim it. Let him declare it. Yes, let him recount it to me in order. So God is saying, I've been giving you the order of what I'm going to do. You've seen what I've done. I've told you what I'm going to do. All of it has happened in time and history, exactly like I said it was going to happen. Let's see somebody else do that. Let's see one of your foreign gods do that. Let's see some religious leader do that. Let's see some human attempt that. Who's like me? Let him proclaim and declare it. Yes, let him recount it to me in order. From the time that I established the ancient nation, who's that? Israel. Israel. They are the ancient nation. From the time that I established the ancient nation, and let them declare to them the things that are coming. In other words, he told the prophets, these are the things that are coming. This is what's going to happen. And the events that are going to take place, he predicted through the prophets what was going to happen. And so far, he's batting a 1,000. So far, everything he has said was going to happen to Israel has happened to Israel. And he said it in advance, and then it actually occurred in time in history. It's occurring in time in history right now as we look at it. So that should give us even more confidence that he's going to do everything else that he has said he's going to do for Israel. He uses Israel as his evidence that he is the only God, the God who keeps calling himself the Redeemer of Israel, the Holy One of Israel, the King of Israel. He wants you to know that he is connected to Israel and he's not going to abandon them. And there's no one like him. Do not tremble then, he says to Israel, through all your events, from the moment that I established your ancient nation, everything that I've declared has come true. And I've told you the events that are coming that are going to take place. So knowing that you're in the hand of that sovereign of God, do not tremble and do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it to you? Why are you afraid? I've already told you what it's what it's going to be, how it's going to happen. Okay, now, again, contextually, historically, when is he saying these words to them? Just before. They're going to go into the Babylonian captivity. And so he starts before he sends them into the captivity by saying, I'm going to take Babylon down in the next chapter. I'm going to raise up Cyrus and he's going to send you back here and you're going to restore my worship. And then here he says, as you're going through it, don't be afraid, because look at how long, how far ahead of time I announced it and proclaimed it to you. So when you go through it, you'll be able to say, yeah, this is exactly what he said. This is exactly what we should have expected because he already said it. He already declared it. So don't tremble and don't be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it to you and you are my witnesses. You're the witness that I said it. I sent you the prophets. You heard from the prophets. You know that I said it and you know that I said it in advance. You know that it was written down ahead of time, so there's no question about the fact that it was predicted before it happened. But then when you go through it, you become my witnesses to the world that what I said is actually coming true. And when I redeem you and restore you and bring you back and establish you, you're my witnesses that what I said has all come true. So not only does he refer to Israel as his chosen and elect, but you can see now why he keeps calling them Israel my servant, because you are going to be my witnesses, despite yourself. And that's the amazing part. In their sin, in their trespasses, in their rebellion, in their lack of worshiping, God is going to use them as his witnesses regardless. Their sovereignty. People are going to be able to look back, on the entire history of the world the same way that we can look back on the history of the world so far and say wow what God has done with Israel is proof positive that he is the only God that is and Israel serves as his witness it's amazing and as if after all that God would go oh never mind no I'm going to give up on Israel now it can't be have I not long since announced it to you and declared it to you? You are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? Or is there any other rock? The omniscient one. The one who knows everything and everyone. The omnipresent one who is everywhere all at once. The one who has all power and authority Says authoritatively I don't know one how are you going to name one if the God who can be everywhere who does know everyone says I'm the only God is there anyone besides me because I don't know of any so what is the likelihood that you're going to find one you know I last week Jennifer had invited me to be a a part of the panel of questioners for kids who had written their senior theses. And they had to come defend their senior theses. And they wanted a pastor on the panel, so they invited me to come. And One of the girls in her paper several times used the phrase, and everybody knows that. And so in my questioning of her, I said, How do you know everybody knows that? Have you checked with everybody? Mm -hmm. So you would have to know everybody and know what everybody thinks in order to say, everybody knows that. She realized the the folly of that statement, and swore that she would never write such a thing again. So I took that as a personal victory. So the only person, the only being in the universe who actually knows everyone and knows everybody's thoughts and is everywhere all the time, the only one who can say, yeah, that's what everybody thinks and actually say that authoritatively, put the challenge in front of us, I'm God, I'm the only God, who else is like me? I don't know anyone if he doesn't know anyone there is no one else you get his point okay thank you for listening to this week's salvation by grace message we encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org and we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the word and study the sovereign grace of god